So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 13. We'll get there momentarily, but I would just remind you that it is impossible for anyone to overstate the magnitude of what Christ has done to save our souls. As we were singing about that this morning, we know that he died, that we might live, and Christ was cursed, that we might be blessed. He did everything for us. And the only thing that we contributed to our salvation was the sin for which Christ needed to die. However, it would be very wrong of us to think of our Lord Jesus Christ only as the gateway to life and not the pathway of life. In other words, we must not view coming to Christ as that thing we did at some point, but as still coming to Him and still being strengthened by Him on a daily basis. We are not meant to come to Christ only to have our sins forgiven and go on in our own strength any more than we would be meant to eat food once a week and live in that strength for that week. Scripture speaks of Christ not only as our Savior, but as our very life. In fact, Paul, when he was writing to uh, the Colossians, he said, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Now just think of that. Christ, who is your life. He is your life. And so, brethren, what I aim for today is just to focus again our minds on Christ and see that He is a mighty Savior, but He is more than a Savior. He is the scapegoat that took away our sin. But to the Christian, He is more than that. He is our very life. He is our wisdom. He is our daily bread. And as David said, we must seek His face continually. And so it is entirely false for anyone to think of Christianity as simply a a one-time experience or a code of ethics to live by, or a standard of morality to appeal to or attempt to live by. It is about walking with Christ. It is about glorying in Christ. In fact, in Philippians 3, Paul says, a mark of the true Christian is that we glory in Christ. That's who we are. Because you can say whatever you want about Christians, but one thing is true about all genuine believers. They are not satisfied with just knowing a few things about Christ. They want to be like Him. They want to walk like Him. They want to think like Him. They want to be transformed into His image. And that's because Christ is the Good Shepherd who always leads His sheep along the path of righteousness. We're always growing in grace, even if it is slow. And so the question is, how do we grow? How, how, can we, as, how, how, can, how can the Christian not only have his sins forgiven, but also become less sinful as we walk with him? Thanks be to God, Christianity is not just a bunch of people gathering around and recounting our sinfulness. We're people who testify of experiencing the transformation of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's, that's what we do. So as we turn to Romans and look at, at the book of Romans, Paul wrote this beautiful letter to these people, right? Specific instructions for how to live the Christian life. And after laying the foundation in these first 11 chapters of what God has done for them, he spends the latter half of the book just working out what that looks like. And in chapter 13, he gives specific instructions that I want to examine today. So just to get to context, I, I'm focusing in on, on verse 14 of, of this chapter. But to get to context, I'm going to read from verse 8 through the end. So read with me in Romans 13, verse 8. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves 
who, excuse me, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other command, commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that is, the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep, for the salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So, let us, so then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but, and here's our verse, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So if you, if you notice, this instruction is to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is directed towards believers, and it is given as a contrast to living in sin. No more laziness, says Paul. No more living improperly. No more sexual immorality. No more jealousy and fighting, but put on Christ. And so you can see contextually that he is not speaking here of putting on the righteousness of Christ for justification, but putting on his character and graces for sanctification. This is for those who are in Christ, and yet their need is to grow in Christ, to put on Christ. Now I recognize that many of us, thanks be to God, have, have come to Christ. We've had our sins taken away. We know something of being a new creation and having transformed hearts, but that's not the end of what Christ will do for us. It is still our great need as believers today and every day to put on Christ, to think like him and to look like him increasingly. And so in looking at, at this verse, verse 14, there are questions that come to mind, and I wonder how many of us would read that Instruction, put on Christ and think, I know exactly what that means. I'm off to do it. Or how many of us would have questions? What, what does that look like? I, I'm, a, I'm a believer. Why is it so important if I'm already a Christian? And how do I do that? And what's really being taught? And so my goal simply is just to a ask and answer some of these questions the best I can from, from Scripture uh, and, and be a practical help to us today. But how to put on Christ? and what that looks like in our lives. And so the first question is, why put on Christ? Again, am I not a believer? Am I not already clothed in Christ's righteousness? Well, yes, you are. But you still need to put on Christ primarily, or first of all, because it is his gracious provision for our natural weakness. Think about Paul. He's writing this letter to the Romans, laying out the foundation of the gospel and God's marvelous grace and saving and giving them his spirit. And he gets to chapter 12, and he starts giving them very practical instructions as to how they're to live. Such things as love one another, be at peace with one another, don't take revenge on one another, submit to authority, owe no one anything but to love, don't live in debauchery. Brethren, these were real people with real life issues and problems that Paul was addressing. And then in verse 14, he gives them the most gracious provision of all. I mean, of all the things that Paul could have said, this is the most wonderful thing. Because he didn't come to them and say, get your act together. You're so weak and feeble and just pathetic. No, he said, put on Christ. Because Christ is the most gracious provision 
for the believer. And again, we're reminded that, that the law was meant to bring us to Christ. We are meant to see our sinfulness and our weakness and our inability. And the law makes that very clear. And then we come to Christ. And the solution for our, our tendency towards certain sinfulness is not more lists of things to do. It is more of Christ. More of Him. And what a gracious provision this is for the Christian. It's, it's not something that's out of reach. It's not something that has, has, not, has been withheld from you. It is Christ has been given to us. It is a privilege and a provision for the believing soul. And you'll notice if you read the New Testament thoroughly and thoughtfully, that oftentimes there are not lists of things that we must do as much as there are commands such as walk in the Spirit, put on Christ, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. These are the things that we must do. So, dear Christian, it is God's gracious provision for us because we have zero strength to grow in grace on our own. And our Lord knows our weakness. Our Lord said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so we want to agree with him and put on Christ, for he himself is our most gracious provision. But then also we do this because it is our duty. Because it is our duty. This is a command. This is an imperative. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's saying, don't wallow around in the muck of sin. Don't be so constant in, in making provision for the sinful desires. Be those who are putting on Christ. And this is not something that's optional. This is a essential for the Christian life. This is our plan for every day of the rest of our lives, from now on into the future. I don't know if you remember, about 20 years ago, there was a fad going around that had the acronym uh, WWJD. Anybody remember that? Anybody remember what it stood for? What would Jesus do? Now, I'm not all that big a fan of fads because just because you're wearing a t-shirt or a bracelet doesn't mean you have the mind of Christ. But it is a good reminder to call to your mind often the nearness of God and what it is that Christ would have us to do. Friends, I would remind you that we live in a dangerous place. This world, we have, we have all kinds of enemies to contend with. We have our flesh to deal with. We have a rapidly depraved culture who is bent on taking every good gift that God has given and perverting it into the most gross sins imaginable. And as believers, we better have a plan. We better be on guard against this godless and wicked culture because Satan wants your soul. He wants you to be miserable and, and chained to sin. He wants you to destroy you. He wants you living by your own wisdom. He wants you to follow the course of this world. Brother, he wants you to be so busy that you have no time to even think about putting on the mind of Christ. And it has nothing to do with your life. So we put on Christ because it is a command for us. It is a command for us. And we know the Bible is full of indicatives, right? Thank God the Bible is full of indicatives, telling us what God has done for us. But we still need the imperatives. We still need to be told, this is what you should do. This is how you should live, telling us what we are to do. So this is the call, not to wait to see if God does something, not to wait and see if we think about it, not to plan on it or talk about it or pray about it. This is the, this is the command, to act upon this today and every day, to put on Christ. And brethren, as we read our New Testaments, we need to be reminded that God always enables us to obey what he commands us to do. 
So this is a possibility by the grace of God. So why put on Christ? Because he is our gracious provision, because it is our duty, but then maybe most precious of all is because Christ is sufficient. Now, dear Christian, let me ask you, why are you saved? Is it not because you have found it to be true that Christ took upon himself your sin and bore your punishment that was meant for you and that life-transforming exchange, he gave you his righteousness? Then I would just ask you this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, all things. In other words, if Christ is your Savior, then he has promised to be your everything. What do you need that God will not provide in Christ? I mean, we need to think about who we are in Christ, to think long and hard about the truth of our union with him. And Scripture teaches some amazing things about the sufficiency of Christ for the believer that if comprehended, I think, would, would really help us and even transform us in, our, in how we think about sanctification. Now, for instance, just think about Colossians 2. In Colossians, Paul is, is, a, is attempting to prove the sufficiency of Christ to his readers, and he's contrasting the modern philosophy of this world with the sufficiency of Christ. And to convince the Colossians that they don't need worldly methods being offered to them by these false teachers, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 9, he says, In Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. All right, so Paul says, Christ lacks nothing. The whole fullness of deity. And then he makes this statement. And you, dear Christian, and you have been filled in him. You have been filled. Now I ask you, does that sound like you're lacking something that the world could offer you? Does that sound like you can come along and say, oh, woe is me, I, I, don't, I don't have what I need, I can't do anything. Does it sound like, like we are in any way insufficient to be what God has called us to be in this world. You are complete. You are filled in Christ. It sounds too good to be true. It sounds like we have a Christ that lacks nothing. And he has not withheld anything from us that we need to live in this world and according to his word. Now think of, think of the glory of being a Christian and having a master who has such an infinite supply of grace that he can provide us with every need. And indeed he does because we read that we are full and complete in him. Then, friends, we must go to him daily, hourly, in our time of need, in our time of frustration, in our weakness, in our temptation. What a provision, what a thought that God has given us, this precious gift of the fullness of God in Christ. And we are complete in him. So Christian, think about this. On this side of heaven, what more could be said of you than as a believer, you are full and complete in Christ. Now my hope 
is that you would leave here today radically convinced of the sufficiency of Christ for all of life. Yes, he is the Savior that died for your sins. He's the Redeemer who brought your life back by, by, by paying the ransom price. But he is the all-sufficient King who happily supplies you with all your needs according to his riches in Christ. Christ is not just the doorway to heaven. He is the pathway of life, of every day. The hope of glory is not that we just have prayed a prayer and, and, and had an experience. The hope of glory is that we have Christ in us and we abide in him. And so I just want to make this very practical by asking you this. When, what, do, what do you do when, when you're going throughout your day and temptation slithers slither its way in front of you and you have a choice to make? What do you do when you feel the, the, the anger like a caged tiger inside you rising up and ready to explode in, in this expression of anger? What do you do when the monotony of life drags on and on and your duties still remain and the temptation is to, is to, to, to grumble and complain and, and cry out against the providence of God? Is Christ sufficient for you then? Can you, by his grace, put on his mind, his perspective, his power to overcome temptation, to kill sin, and maintain the mind of Christ? Because the goal is, the goal is this, to have such a recognition of the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. Now, when faced with temptation to sin, we would react as Joseph did. Say, how can I sin against God? Because you know the nearness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we put on Christ because it is God's gracious provision, because it is a command for us to obey, and because our Lord is sufficient for his people. Our Lord is sufficient for his people. So then another question I would like to ask is, what does it mean? Practically, what does it really mean to put on Christ? Now, I don't want to oversimplify it, but unless we really know how to live this command out, we're not going to be all that helped. It doesn't do a whole lot of good to, to have a verse like this if it just makes a good wall ornament and it has nothing to do with our hearts. So practically, at the foundational level, what are we talking about? I just want to offer three things. One... It means that we put ourselves in the streams of grace. In other words, friends, avail yourself to everything God has given you to grow in holiness. The one who sits in the corner of the house and complains of being cold, while there's a fire in the fireplace in the other room, has only himself to blame. Oftentimes we as believers are prone to complaining about God's dealing with us or, or we seem sometimes indifferent and sometimes it is because we're not warming ourselves by the fire of God's word. Sometimes we are so distant from Christ and our hearts are cold and it's not because God is testing us somehow, it's because we're not availing ourselves to the grace he's given us. Be looking for Christ. Avail yourself to what he has given you. You don't find a lot of surfers hanging out by a mountain creek waiting for a big wave, do you? You find them looking for them in the ocean 
They're going searching. They're making themselves available to it. And likewise, as believers, we need to put ourselves in the places where we can find Christ most visible. And friends, it's so simplistic, but I will not give up saying it. It begins with you and your Bible. Amen? That's where we need... What is the secret to the blessed man of Psalm 1? It is he who is delighting in God's law. He loves it. He meditates on it. He takes it and ponders its meaning and application. He, he doesn't just put eyeballs on it for five minutes and then go about his day. He's meditating on it. He's soaking it into his life. And friends, Christ, Christ is revealed in the pages of God's word of, of the Word. And as believers, if we're going to grow in Christ's likeness, if we're going to put on his mind, we must be those who are saturated in his word. So if we would say that putting on Christ means that we would follow him and living how he lived, talking how he talked, caring how he cared, etc., then we must say that we can only put on Christ to the degree that we know him from his word. That's where we find him. And if you want to walk as he walked, as John wrote, then we're going to have to know him. If we're going to imitate him, we must know him. That's where we're going to find Christ and to know what it means to put him on. And it is no surprise that one of the greatest temptations is the area of neglecting your time in the word. Temptations abound. We all know them. Tiredness, busyness, some sense of adequacy in ourselves, some familiarity with scripture. We have all these reasons why we would not put ourselves at this fountainhead. Brethren, be very careful because a day can become a week and become a month and a year and a pattern where you're not in the Word of God. So I just want to say this one thing yet. If you want to put yourself in the streams of grace, then put yourself where the current runs strongest. Put yourselves under the preaching of God's Word as much as you can. Every chance you get Gather with God's people to gather his, to hear his word proclaimed. So brethren, do you want to put on Christ? Then be planted by the streams of water. Meditate on his word. We'll be transformed by the renewing of our minds in the word of God. Secondly, though, it means that we would see and imitate Christ's character. Now in Colossians, we find Paul writing again to believers there. And when he gets to chapter 3, he's giving them... Very practical instruction again about how they ought to live. And we, put a, we find very similar language there in Colossians 3 as we have here in Romans 13. You can turn there if you want. If not, just listen as I read. But Colossians 3.12 and following says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So this is the same language. Put on. Put on these things, Paul says. Put on holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Now, what do we do with these verses? Well, in them, we have the characteristics of Christ, and we have the exhortation to put them on. And so, it is our goal as believers to so imitate Christ that people would see his character through us. To be able to say, this is how Christ is. I mean, do we all have people that we can point to and say, if you want to see compassion lived out, look at this man. Look at this woman. 
who is so merciful and kind. This is a representative of Christ. So friends, the last thing I want to leave you with is the idea that, that this putting on of Christ is an abstract idea or, or fine-sounding but impractical exhortation. No, this is how we live it out. This is what it looks like. One commentator said that to put on Christ means here to be on every side, listen to this, to be on every side fortified by the power of his spirit and thereby be prepared to discharge all the duties of holiness. That's what it means to put on Christ, to be fortified by his spirit and prepared to discharge the duties of holiness. It is imitating our Lord, imitating our Lord. And so Colossians 3, in one way, is application to Romans 13, 14. Look at the character of Christ. He is compassionate. He is kind. He is humble. He is meek. Now, by the power of his grace and the power of his Holy Spirit, put on his character and live as he lived. So, putting on Christ looks something like, Lord, I see my impatience. I see my pride. And I see what Christ has called me to. Would you please help me to put on these characteristics, to live these out, to mortify my sin, and to grow in holiness. So it means seeing and imitating Christ's character. But then back in Romans 13, 14, it also, putting on Christ also means making no provision for our flesh. Now I would again call your attention to the fact that our text begins with a conjunction. This is not a verse that stands alone. It has a context, and the context is this. Christian, it's time for you to wake up. It's time for you to wake up from your sleepy way of living, to cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light, away with living a life of indulging in sin. Now here is your provision. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who is all sufficient for you. You must cling to him. And brother, I want you to think about this. As Christians... We have been recreated. We have a newness of life. We have sanctified desires. Our hearts have been changed. Th these are the things that we as Christians live out, right? Amen? We, we know something of that. This is what Christ has done for us. But we are still being changed. We are still putting sin to death. And we are still in need of transformation. So even as a new creation, you need to heed this command to make no provision for your flesh to gratify its desires because we still live in these bodies. So what does it mean? To make no provision for the flesh very practically means that we should not provide for the corrupt propensities or inclinations of our bodies. Now, by God's design, we have bodies that have needs. But when we let our flesh run wild into all manner of sinful and selfish desires, like an unbridled stallion, we're making every provision for the flesh, which is exactly contrary to what Paul is teaching us. Our bodies, our desires, must be brought under the lordship of Christ. Do you remember one of the marks of depravity there in Ephesians chapter 3? 
Paul's writing about uh, you know who we were before Christ, and he said we were sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh. Brethren, this is a mark of depravity. See, friends, I think sometimes Satan gets far too much credit than he deserves for the sin that we fall into. Because oftentimes it's just as simple as this. You're making provision for your flesh. We need to remember that sinful thoughts breed sinful behaviors and the fires of sin are, are stoked in our minds and we make provision for our thoughts and the fire grows hotter and we seek opportunity to fulfill them and the lights are going off and God's saying, don't make provision for the flesh. Down the path we go. And unless we hear, hear this command and say no and we wrestle our flesh into submission and put on the mind of Christ and we can be delivered from the fowler's snare. So, again, I want to make this practical. So very practically, this means that we must be aware of our sinful tendencies and wicked inclinations. So, if you're tempted with gluttony, don't go to a buffet. Right? If you're tempted by covetousness and desires of other people's possessions, don't spend time being enamored by everybody else's life and what they have online or whatever else it may be that they have and you don't. If worry is your tendency, then don't watch the news and don't always be concerned about the opinions of everyone online. If money is an idol, then find people and ministries and give until it hurts, but don't let your heart be set on that idol. And another thing that we can learn from is the people of the past. Scripture is so full of examples for us, good and bad. That's why the word is so precious, because we can read about people to imitate, and we can read about people that we don't want to be anything like, right? So we can benefit from the stories of God's people, what he's given us. And we can learn about making provision for our, for our flesh. We can probably learn from Samson. He shouldn't have been hanging around Delilah's neighborhood. And men and women, but especially men, you have no business hanging around places that are making provision for your flesh. We can learn that. We can learn that Lot shouldn't have pitched his tent towards Sodom. Because it ended up that he lived in Sodom. He lived there and he was even hesitant to leave when the angel came to rescue him. And we likewise should not seek to position ourselves so closely with the world and the sins thereof that it's hard to even know where the Christian is. People shouldn't look at you and say, I don't know. I don't know if he's a Christian. We can learn that Solomon should have been happy with the wife of his youth instead of marrying everyone that smiled at him. 
He let his flesh run wild. And in his old age, it led him into idolatry and wickedness. And so you can see how these people made provision for their sinful tendencies. And so, brethren, this command is for our good. This command is for our good. And when people cast things like this to the wind and say, oh, I'm free in Christ, you need to be very careful that they're not letting their passions take them into sinfulness and making shipwreck of their faith. So are there areas, brothers and sisters, where you find yourself especially weak? Then hear this command and make no provision for your flesh to gratify its desires. Now, young people, I just want to ask you something. If, 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 if this can be, as a young person, I know it's not just these guys, but there's, as a young person, if, if this can be the, the, the aim of your mind, this one verse, to put on Christ and not make provision for your flesh, it will save you from a lifetime of sorrow and regret. A lifetime of sorrow and regret. Do not make provision for the sinful inclinations of your flesh and you will live in victory. I mean, this is how gracious God is to us. This is how simplistic it is. So simple that many scoff at how simple it is. But it remains. And its effectiveness is undeniable. If you don't provide opportunity for your flesh, you will not fall into some of these sins that have lifetime consequences. Put on Christ is the call. And you know what? Sanctification grows and sin is starved by that same action. We're growing in holiness and we're killing sin by putting on Christ. So lastly and quickly, how do we do this? Now, I was, maybe, maybe these overlap some, you know, what it means or why we do it or how we do it. But forgive me for wanting, I, I, I want so bad for you to leave with a sense of how practical this can be and how practical the word is to living out the Christian life. So how do we put on Christ? I just want to share how I, I think one of the primary ways that we can live this out today and this week and going forward. And I think it is this. By saturating our minds with Christ. Now, brethren, God has made us intellectual beings. We have minds. We have an ability to reason. We, we need to be using our minds to the glory of God, right? And our minds are the gateway to our hearts. So when our minds are saturated with truth and we're guarding the way to our hearts, we're protecting ourselves from error. And so putting on Christ begins with our minds. Scripture speaks so much of our, our minds and our thoughts, right? So just a couple examples. Negatively, we read of the danger of thoughts and what they lead to. Paul warned the Corinthians that unless they guarded their minds, their thoughts would lead them away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. In Colossians 1, we read that, that we were once alienated and hostile to God in our minds, right? So that's, that's what we were. But positively, we read in, in Romans 12 that transformation takes place how? You remember how it takes place? By the renewal of your mind. These are the... These are the Simple truths of Scripture. Isaiah 26, 3 says that God keeps him in perfect peace whose mind is fixed on him. And in Lamentations 3, we have this beautiful example of, of Jeremiah putting on Christ. He laments the whole situation that he's in, right? He, he's, he's calling out to God just utter futility. Oh, it's, it's horrible. 
And then he gets to verse 21, and he says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. You see, what was the turning point? The turning point was calling truth to his mind that brought him around. Right? And this is what I want us to see, that putting on Christ is putting him on in our minds. It's saturating our minds and thoughts with truth. Truth about him, primarily, that's going to keep us from thinking and believing and eventually living wrongly. Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about positive thinking where we try to create our own reality. That's bogus. That's, that's impossible, right? But what I am talking about is fixing our minds on truth and reigning in our thoughts so we don't careen over the cliff of, of lies and fall into the pit of despair. We need to be people who are filling our minds with thoughts of Christ, to be saturating ourselves day and night, as the psalmist said, to be meditating on Christ. This is, this, is, this is practically what we need to do. And so I ask you, what is going into your mind on a daily basis that is governing how you handle your thoughts and feelings? What are you feeding your mind with, Christian? What are you consuming Above all else, what are you taking in? Is it the cares of this world? Jesus said, watch yourselves. There's a warning here. Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with the cares of this life. Is it that your mind is constantly deluged with media so that your idle thoughts are all focused on Something you saw on the news or YouTube or TikTok or Facebook and whatever else is the newest rage? Brethren, as Paul said, we glory in our shame when our minds are consumed with earthly things. Everything around you is designed to grab your attention. You won't make it two miles down the road until you see something a billboard, a radio ad, a phone notification, everything is calling for your attention. Everything wants your mind. They want to fill it so you can be so distracted, so busy, or so discontent with what God's given you. So I'm just asking, is Christ there? Is he in your thoughts? Our thoughts need to be flooded with Christ. How can I imitate him? How has he given me these opportunities to follow his example? What are the graces in his life that I can strive to put on? In Colossians 2, we read again that, that in Christ, all the treasures and wisdom and knowledge are in him. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in him. And you remember you are complete in him. Oh, we would be like the miners of the gold rush. Passionately, consistently digging and searching and treasuring all these things that Christ is to us. Is Christ the anchor of your mind and holds you fast in all circumstances? We read in Philippians 2.5, he says, have this mind about you, which is yours in Christ. And then he goes on to explain that. But he's saying, have the mind of Christ. Have the mind of Christ. So, again, let's think through 
how we have his mind. So let me just give you some examples. For example, you feel lonely and isolated and forgotten, and you think, I'm all alone, and no one understands, and I have it harder than anyone else. Can you, at that point, employ your mind and think of Proverbs 18.24? A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now, that speaks both of our relationships here, but Christ is ultimately the friend who sticks closer than a brother, and he is near to you. He is near to you. Or you look around and compare your lot in life with others and you conclude, I've been given so little. In fact, you're tempted to grumble and complain about what God has done and not done in your life. And he's withheld good things from you. Can you be reminded of the truth of Psalm 8411? That says, the Lord bestows favor and honor and no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Or maybe you think, I'm just tired of suffering. I'm tired of all this difficulty. It's not worth it. I'm going to live for myself. I'm just tired of taking care of everybody else's needs. I'm going to look out for myself. There's temptations to live like that. Can you put on the mind of Christ and say, I have read somewhere that Christ died, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. I must live for him. I can never turn away from him. You put on the mind of Christ. Or perhaps someone's here and you think, this sin, this sin is just clinging to me. I shall never be free from it. I can never overcome it. And then you find that Christ is the high priest who is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Christ. To the uttermost, no sin is outside of his ability to save you from. Or perhaps you think, how can I endure this discipline from God? How God's hand is so heavy upon me, I, I cannot get away from it. How can I endure? And you think, it says somewhere, do not Regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, or be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines those he loves. And you put on the mind of Christ and you conclude, I must be loved by God. Otherwise, he would not discipline me like this. You see, friends, Christ is to be the great controller and comforter of our minds. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is fixed on you. But it does not happen, it will not happen, apart from you and I being saturated in his word and being intentional to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It does not happen while we sit idly by and say, well, I'm going to see if God does something. I'm going to see if he wants me to be free of this sin. I'll, be, I'll see if he wants me to be more holy. I'll see if he does something to break this chain of sin. No, it does not happen like that. It happens. When we put on Christ, it happens. When we obey the command and we recognize that he is our great provision. And he is everything. And we are complete in him. So my, my time is up, but...
I would just end where I began. Where is Christ in your mind? Where is Christ in your plans? Where is he? Is he with you throughout the day? Are you putting on Christ? Are you putting on the mind of Christ and filtering everything through him? May God help us to do exactly that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the treasure of Jesus Christ being not only our Savior, but our friend, our shepherd. Thank you, God, that we are not left on our own to battle the world, the flesh, and the devil, and everything that those things throw at us. Thank you for the, for the provision that we can have Christ, the whole Christ. We can have the mind of Christ. Help us, Lord, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and to make no provision for the flesh as we go forth from here. Would you lead us, Lord? Lead us and guide us and fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might walk in obedience to you, that we might grow in holiness, that we would, that we would be a reflection to those around us, the transformation of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. We ask this in his name.